and welcome to Practicing Peace, an interview-based podcast dedicated to learning how ordinary folks can embody the peace made possible by Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Hayden Hagerman. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Stephen Chapman. Dr. Chapman is an associate professor of Old Testament at Duke University, where he holds joint positions in the Divinity School and Graduate Program in Religion. For the past few years, in addition to his teaching and scholarly work, he has also served as the director of the Graduate Program in Religion. He is the author and editor of numerous essays and books, most recently First Samuel as Christian Scripture, published by Erdman's, and the co-edited volume The Cambridge Companion to Hebrew Bible Old Testament. In addition to all of this, he is an ordained American Baptist minister. While having studied and written on many different issues and topics, an important subject of inquiry for Dr. Chapman has been the Old Testament in its relationship to violence. It is this particular subject we will be exploring in depth with him today. Dr. Chapman, thanks for joining the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Hayden. Thank you. Uh, so just starting right off the bat, you've written a lot and studied uh, extensively the relationship between the Old Testament and violence. Just, I guess, a biographical question. What sparked your scholarly interest in the subject? <laughs> well, I kind of came to the subject kicking and screaming in a way. I uh, was aware, of course, that... Many people perceive the Old Testament as not only being violent, but being problematically violent. And so I was going to churches and speaking to groups uh, in other places and trying to talk about the good things that are in the Old Testament, things that I feel like don't always get enough attention. And um, even so, Typically, you know, I would talk about God's love or something really wonderful. And the first question would be, what about Joshua? What about violence? And I was complaining about this phenomenon with a friend of mine, Lauren Winter, actually, on the faculty here. And she did what you need a friend to do. She listened to me complain. And then she said, well, you know, look, if this is the problem that people have with the Old Testament, you're, you're an Old Testament professor. Maybe you should do something about that. Maybe you have some responsibility. And of course, I knew instantly that that was correct. And I felt convicted. And I thought, you know, I really, I haven't tackled these really complicated issues. And, and I need to, because I am aware that they constitute a major stumbling block for people in terms of reading the Old Testament, understanding the Old Testament, thinking about the Old Testament as a scripture. And that is, um, that's exactly what I want to promote. I want to have the Old Testament known better and used more within the church. So at that point, I started to do more reading and thinking about the issue and I began to write some essays and uh, then recently I decided to tackle the book of Joshua and so right now I'm working on a monograph on the theology of the book of Joshua for the Old Testament theology series which is co-edited by Pat Miller and Brent Strawn. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Where, well, it, it, it came up in there, but um, a consistent theme all throughout your work is reading and learning to read well, and that's essential for being a theological um, student or a student in general of the Bible. Um, but there are some challenges to reading the biblical text well. Uh, what are some of the major challenges that you perceive hinder present-day readers from reading the text well? The biggest challenge I'm persuaded is a pervasive confusion between historical reconstruction and interpretation, uh, literary, scriptural interpretation. When people start reading the Bible, especially, I think, the Old Testament, but not exclusively the Old Testament, and, and especially narratives, there is this, and it doesn't only happen in the academy, it also happens in churches. There is this very quick transfer to the events behind the text mm-hmm. and, the, and, a, and a move to reconstruct the events behind the text. And those begin to substitute for the text itself. And so what typically happens is that People will start with the text, and then they'll reach behind the text, and they'll reconstruct some kind of social historical context, and then they'll try and draw an analogy between that reconstructed event or set of circumstances and the present day. Biblical interpretation is always about making analogies, ultimately. But when the analogy that is made operates between the events behind the text and the contemporary events, what has happened, in effect, is that the scriptural text itself has disappeared, has fallen away. I find literary tools and perspectives especially helpful right at this point because they can refocus our attention on the biblical text itself. It's been said by a number of people that much historical criticism of the Bible treats the biblical text as if it's something like a clear glass window. So the the goal is to look through the window at the world on the other side of it and and see that world, reconstruct that world. What literary efforts help us to do is to refocus on the window itself. So to view the window as something like a stained glass window that has its own story to tell and it's illuminated by the world behind it that's where the light comes from right but it's the window itself which is the primary concern and to the extent we're going to draw analogies we need to draw analogies between the text and the contemporary world and that's really crucial because to come at it from another perspective Biblical narrative is not simply a historical report. It's not simply reportage. It doesn't simply tell us what happened. What it wants to do is to talk about what's happened and to tell us how to think about it theologically. It's an effort to try and reflect on history in order to locate God's activity and to understand the identity of Israel and the identity of the church in light of history. 
So if you focus just on the historical circumstances, the brute facts of history, what you miss is this other aspect of the biblical text that uh, is, is really, I think, in the end, um, more important. Uh, there is a kind of perspective on offer in the biblical text, and literary tools can help us gain a, a closer apprehension of that perspective. Uh, I, I like what Robert Alter has said, and um, you know this may set me apart from some other people who have had other things to say about this kind of issue. But Robert Alter, a literary scholar, says that what we need is not, in fact, a more imaginative approach to scripture. What we need is a more precise one. And I think that's what literary tools can help us do if we start talking about characterization, point of view, really see the biblical text as a text and see how these literary techniques have been used in order to construct this kind of perspective, then we'll begin to gain the fullness of the, uh, the biblical uh, witness. And, and that's what we need. And that's what we often don't get because we read too quickly, we read in a historical way, which isn't literarily sensitive, all kinds of reasons. Uh, but it's coming back to the text and I think asking those kinds of literary questions which will help us get more and help us be more productive and more successful biblical interpreters. One of my favorite statements um, that you've said undoubtedly a few times in class or um, even in your work is that the church did not canonize the history of Israel. They canonized the Old Testament. Right. That's a... That's me trying to be a little provocative, right, trying right, to be a right. little polemical, yeah, you know. yeah. but, but it gets your attention, sure. doesn't it? And it makes a point. We act sometimes as if it, it, the history is what is canonical or supremely authoritative or the main thing. And, and there are reasons why we do that. I mean, I don't, on the other hand, want to cut the cord between the text and history either. The biblical text is not a collection of cleverly devised myths it does root itself in history and at the core of the gospel is a confession that God acted in space and time. Something happened, things happened. And so the historical questions are important and they have to be asked and we have to say what we can about those things. But, you know, I think one of the differences that um, that's true of me, say, in comparison with some other scholars, especially New Testament scholars. I, I, I'm an Old Testament guy. And the historical questions are just finally a lot harder. There's just, it's so long ago. There's so much we don't know. And we can try and make educated guesses, and of course we do. But I'm also, I guess don't like to admit this, but I guess I'm old enough now that I have seen the historical fashions change. Uh, you know, when you are taught assured paradigms and then all of a sudden those paradigms aren't assured anymore or there are other paradigms, 
uh, it's led me anyway to be a little bit more skeptical about our ability to reconstruct history successfully. So I, I don't want to, I think they're important questions. I don't want to get away from them completely, but there are certainly some questions about which I would say I think we have to be something like historically agnostic. Mm. You know, we, if we're going to really be historians, we can't know for sure. And if we have to wait to know for sure before we do biblical interpretation, I think that's a problem because we may never get there, mm. right? Uh, and there again, what we have is the text. Um, there's a, a famous Old Testament scholar from the 20th century, Gerhard von Rad, uh, wrote a terrific two-volume history, uh, uh, theology of the Old Testament, really three-volume if, uh, if you include his volume on wisdom. It's an instructive example for me because von Rad tries, tries to ground his theology in history, and he's very little read these days because the historical reconstructions have shifted all around him. And, uh, and so he's, he's kind of out of favor, but he was a wonderfully perceptive reader of the text. And you can still read his Old Testament theology with a lot of profit. His literary insights, his theology, his theological insights are just stunning. But, but the historical stuff all shifted. And so, you know, it's not really um, worth reading him for that anymore. We tend to think of history as something really solid, but in fact, the literary side of the biblical witness is, is more solid in many respects, more objective in a certain way. I mean, we can speculate about, uh, Robert Alter says this too, whether something is a Sumerian or Akkadian loan word or what the exact social circumstances were, or was this part of a group or some kind of movement well, possibly, but but the text actually is consistent and firm to a surprising degree. Uh, you know, you think of a passage like Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac. That chapter begins by saying, after these things, God tested Abraham, and it always starts that way. That's remarkably objective. And anyone who is going to interpret that passage has to ask certain questions of the text. What does it mean after these things? What does it mean to test? You know, these kinds of... And, and when you take your cue from the wording of the text and ask those kinds of questions, your interpretation will never be dated. You look back in the history and all the great interpreters, when they came to that passage, they have to ask the same question which means you're part of a conversation now. So you're part of the same conversation uh, along with Augustine and Luther and Calvin. You know, anybody who reads Genesis 22 has to make certain decisions about that text because, you know, of course, there are different translations and a word may change here and there. But, but the text is really remarkably stable. Like, that's the point. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much um, for that. Um, now, I guess moving on, um, we, we're talking about challenges that, that, that come up before us um, as we're reading the, the Old Testament. As, we're, as we uh, focus our attention now to uh, these texts that, that ha 
overflow with violence. Um, one of the misconceptions that we often have is terms about how to categorize certain things like wars and whatnot. Um, and you bring this up in, in your essay, Martial Memory, Peaceful Vision, that uh, for, for years scholars have been calling what, what's in the Old Testament um, as holy war. Um, but you say that's a misnomer. Why do you say that? Well, I say it because the term never shows up in the Old Testament at all. War is never called holy. And if you look at especially the use of the root, uh, kof dalet shin, uh, kadash, and you look at the language of warfare, they really overlap very little. They're, they're, I try and make the case they're really two separate discourses. There, there certainly is violence in the Old Testament and the New for that matter. That's very troubling. The other thing that needs to be said is that the violence that is in the Bible has had really dire effects over time. I mean, one of the things we're learning, and I think it's been overdue, frankly, we're learning that in order to interpret the Bible well, we also have to attend to its history of reception, or its history of interpretation, its history of effects. What has the Bible done over time? How have people interpreted it? And what have the consequences been? And in fact, the violence in the Bible has provided a, a kind of model for some really horrific uses of violence right down to the present day. And so we can look at um, issues from history, say Catholic, Protestant violence. We can look at uh, examples like the Afrikaners in South Africa with the Zulus, uh, the recent uh, genocide in Rwanda with the Hutu and the Tutsi. Uh, and, and there's this language uh, that wants to ground things in biblical rhetoric right down to the present. So it really is a pressing, urgent issue. And I certainly, what, whatever I do with violence, I don't want in any way to dismiss the issue or to suggest that it can kind of be pushed to the side. I, I don't think that at all. But... Um, but to call it holy war, I think, is problematic. The term itself seems to have come into Old Testament scholarship from scholarship on Islam. It was kind of import. And then it was really popularized by Gerhard von Rad's book, uh, Holy War in Israel, which was sort of surprisingly popular, well read. But as I've already said, the discourses of holiness and warfare are really separate. They don't overlap. It, it's the case that soldiers can be consecrated for battle. It is the case that sometimes spoil or booty is described as uh, consecrated or holy. And so you know, it's not the case that there are no resonances at all. But war itself is never called holy. And there's, there, there's not a difference between a particular kind of holy war battle and other battles. This was what uh, Fenrod's claim was. And it's really been 
uh, rejected at this point. Building on proposals that other people have made, I have suggested that it's better and closer to the biblical idiom to call warfare in the Old Testament something like Yahweh war or divine war. And that's because that idiom does appear. So we hear about the wars of Yahweh several times in the Old Testament. We're also told multiple times that a certain battle or certain battles belong to Yahweh. Uh, we're also told that Yahweh is a, a man of war or a warrior. Exodus 15 would be the prime example of that kind of language. And then angels show up, especially the angel of the Lord, who seems to be something like a battle commander or a general, uh, at least uh, on occasion. Divine war might be preferable because, especially for Jewish listeners and readers, the name Yahweh is um, something that really shouldn't be pronounced. So Yahweh war, some people have proposed divine war, some others have said. Daniel Smith Christopher, who is a Quaker biblical scholar, he has suggested the term miracle war, which I also like. It's not really how the Old Testament talks about it, but I think it does catch uh, an important nuance because in these battle accounts, uh, there's very much the sense that what human beings do is not ultimately decisive. It's not only that certain battles or wars belong to Yahweh, it's that Yahweh determines ultimately what is going to happen. And these battle accounts are written to call attention to that and to really insist on it. And I think one of the things that's characteristic about the Old Testament and not always sufficiently recognized is that the Old Testament's not as much concerned about whether God is implicit in violence somehow, although it, it is concerned about that, but not as much, I think, in the end as we are. The Old Testament is really concerned, however, in the way that warfare encourages human beings to think that they are masters of their fate and in charge of their own destiny. And the battle accounts in the Old Testament often seem to be written in such a way as to undermine that kind of conclusion and to insist that in battle, as well as every, in every other way, God is sovereign and God is in control. And that goes hand in hand with another aspect of this that I think does not always get enough attention, and that is the running critique in the Old Testament of militarism. It's really striking, you know, in a, in a collection that people find problematic because it contains so much violence. Um, we have this running critique of soldiers and armies and weapons and horses and chariots and even international treaties. And again, I think that is to reinforce the notion that God is in control and God will decide uh, who is going to win and whether Israel is going to survive 
One of the things I, I say about this issue is that you have to, I think, hold three things together. You have to look at the texts which are about violence and these problematic aspects of violence. You also have to include, I think, uh, this critique of militarism, even nationalism, that runs through the biblical corpus. And then you also have to think about these really remarkable visions of eschatological peace. And it's, it's quite explicit in the text, right? You look at something like Isaiah 2, which is mirrored in Micah 4, and not only does it describe this wonderful future uh, where everything will be hunky-dory, right? It's very explicit. It says, and, you know, swords will be made into plowshares and nation will not rise up against nation and people won't even study or learn war anymore, right? So there's very much a sense that the ultimate future for Israel and the nations is a future without war or on the other side of war, right? And, and what I've tried to do is, and, and this is an effort to try and keep the historical side going, is, is to kind of work with the idea of a kind of transition over time, right? That in the beginning, I think Israel is, for all intents and purposes, an ancient Near Eastern country like all the others, and I think has largely the same kind of um, ideas about its deity that other nations do, and that includes violence, and I think they have the same kind of ideas about battle and warfare. What What's striking about all that is not where they begin, right? Uh, that makes perfect sense in historical terms. What's remarkable is where they go, right? And even as they've kind of inherited this complex of things, what I call in that one essay, martial memory, right? Uh, they move towards and are anticipating a future without that. And so in the course of their history, their story, in the course of the Old Testament, I think what happens is it transitions from a past which is steeped in warfare and blood to a future in which those things are no longer present. One of the, the points, uh, you said a lot of good stuff there. Um, <laughs> Sorry for going on. No, 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 no. <laughs> I get <that's> going. <laughs> um, one of the points that I, I, I want to, I guess, draw out is you mentioned this, this critique of warfare, militarism, um, that there's these strange passages, one of which you bring up in your essay, Deuteronomy 20. Uh, where all of a sudden Moses starts asking people, have any of you recently gotten married, planted vineyards, planted houses, don't go to war? Right. What, what in the world's going on there? Well, I think it's a satire, really. I mean, it's exactly how you wouldn't do this, really. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're trying to get an army to get some rules for warfare, and they say, you know, so before you go into battle, you have to give people... The, the warriors every opportunity to have an out and if 
they've recently been married or they've bought a house or planted a vineyard or what well you know you're excused go home it's fine and you see that underscores the point that it's not finally about what kind of weapons you have or how big your army is it's about what the will of god mm-hmm. is the same thing happens another great story in uh, in judges 7 gideon. with gideon yeah. you know and the the whole thing is set up really to reduce his fighting force as much as possible. Uh, or uh, another example that comes to mind is 1 Samuel 14, which is a kind of contrast. I mean, Saul is all, he's a big guy, and he's all about getting other big guys to join him and to have a lot of weapons and armor. And the, the contrast in the course of the book is provided by Jonathan and, of course, David, you know, David against Goliath. But in 1 Samuel 14, uh, Jonathan gives us the, the kind of noble ideal. He sees something going on and he says, well, I'm just going to go over there. Just, you know, just alone, really, just Jonathan and his armor bearer. And so there's this contrast between that kind of faith, you see, and the kind of faith that Saul exhibits, which is hedged all around by this anxiety and this concern. You know, we, we've got to have weapons and we've got to have bigger armies and bigger guys and that's what will ensure our success. And Jonathan and David know that that's, that's not the case. If God doesn't want you to win, it's not going to matter how many guys you have and how many weapons uh, you have. Even, even the, the taboo about counting men in an army feeds in at this point you know the census or some people have suggested we might even think of it as a draft there seems to be a taboo against doing that because when you start counting you start to draw conclusions on the basis of your troop strength and uh, and the biblical witnesses see that as real danger you know it 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 suggests to people that they're in charge of their destiny and what these texts want to insist on over and over again is that they're not in charge of their destiny. Um, I'm reminded that even in that Deuteronomy 20 passage, uh, there is there's a clause um, that broke, broken up into four clauses. There's the there's the conditions. Then you offer peace. Here's the nations you don't do that with, and That's then. Right whatever you do don't take down trees don't take down trees um the fruit trees yeah the fruit trees yeah yeah so there's there's even a command there but in the third clause um the rabbis uh in numbers rabba they they find that that moses in deuteronomy 2 actually extends peace to the amorites and they argue that cancels out clause three so uh, even there, there's a rejection of we're just going to take Deuteronomy 20 and not read the rest of the book. Um, but there's, you have to read the rest of the book to, to be attentive to the critique here. Well, we see this in the post-biblical tradition within Judaism as well as the biblical tradition because subsequently in the rabbinic literature, certain practices and norms are are qualified so much or hedged around so much that they become in all intents and purposes non-performable. 
the death penalty would be another example. So that, and I think if you see that in post-biblical tradition, it makes sense as well to imagine that there was probably something similar in the biblical tradition you know, as a kind of historical development. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, moving on to uh, some other passages, strange passages. Actually, these perhaps are more troubling are the passages dealing with the Malik, uh, the four passages that come up. Um, I believe Samuel, for Samuel, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Exodus. This, uh, this command to erase Amalek's name. In your essay, uh, Perpetual War, The Case of Amalek, you even argue, no, that, that, is, that has more going on here. This, this notion of erasing Amalek's name has more going on here than just uh, obliterating these people. It's very interesting. It's very troubling. It really looks like a command to commit genocide, mm -hmm. what we find in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. Um, and it seems to be enacted in a horrifying way in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, so how do we come to grips with these texts? Well, I, I, I don't... I don't know, but I tried to reflect on it in the essay, and I think that there are certain factors that can be brought into the discussion that, that will help. Um, here again, I would say what I found particularly useful is not so much reflecting about the history behind the text, which I think is just non-recoverable, when we're dealing with these texts and this issue. But to look at the texts themselves and to look very closely at the language and to ask questions which are really more literary in nature. So I tried to attend to the, the metaphorical or figural, figurative language of the texts. You know, it's striking, for example, that in Exodus 17, Israel isn't commanded to do anything with Amalek. God says, I will have war with Amalek generation to generation. And then in Deuteronomy 25, that does seem to be maybe extended to the people of Israel. But even there, the language is the language of memory. Mm. And it seems to be instructing the Israelites to remember something in a certain way rather than really to um, do something in the future. Uh, and then I, another factor that I think is really helpful is to bring a kind of narrative concern to bear. I mean, these chapters are not simply duplicates of each other. Uh, we'll stick one here, we'll stick one there. I, I think they appear at particular moments in the Pentateuchal narrative for uh, a particular reason. They're giving us something that has some narrative shape to it. So in Exodus 17, we're told that God will have war against Amalek. And why? Well, because... Amalek came up and attacked Israel uh, without warning, apparently, although Israel was 
also apparently trying to move through their territory. Um, Numbers 14 is important precisely because it's often overlooked. Uh, but there we do have an account of Israel trying to move through the Amalekite territory into the land of Canaan. And, and they know at this point that God doesn't want them to do this at this point and from this direction. And lo and behold, their effort is unsuccessful. They're slaughtered, right? So it seems, in fact, to be a narrative about Israelite disobedience or, or overreaching. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 then does take the form of a, a kind of um, a command to Israel, but again, it's so heavy on, on memory. And then you have this language of, it doesn't actually say kill, it, it's erasing, yes, yeah. and erasing memory, and um, it's, it's very difficult to know exactly what is meant or what is conceived. You also have the fact that, unlike with other people groups, we don't have the language of Amalekites or even sons or children of Amalek um, very often at all. It is instead um, prevailingly Amalek, 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 which you know, e even in Hebrew, or maybe more in Hebrew, it has the sense of a kind of symbol. You know, rather than a people group per se, it seems to kind of stand for something, and and that's exactly how it's been interpreted in uh, in post biblical Judaism. Amalek has uh, has become a symbol for the the kind of force in the world which wants nothing less than the destruction of of Israel of of the Jews. Uh, it is used in a variety of ways, and some of the ways are, are really kind of terrible and fall prey to the, the same kinds of uh, uses, destructive uses of other biblical examples and, uh, and language about violence. But it has also been used to describe, uh, first and foremost, um, uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, it was used during the Second World War and the Holocaust by Jews to talk about Hitler. And, uh, and I think that gets something important about the passage and something that, within the context of Christian Bible and Christian theology, we can connect with because the New Testament also has a sense of cosmic evil, of the principalities and powers that stand against the gospel in the church. Ephesians 6 talks about, um, you know, this present darkness, the cosmic power of this present darkness. I, I think that's a connection that we can make with Amalek. It, it can be read as uh, the demonization of a particular people. Of course, there are no Amalekites around today that we know of anyway, but I, I like the idea of uh, seeing Amalek as a symbol for this kind of uh, cosmic violence, this kind of force in the world that sets itself up against God, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that might be one way to kind of rehabilitate these texts and to see them still as having something to say 
to the present day church. Right, right. Um, uh, uh, something that you mention all throughout your work is that you know uh, the the point that we often forget is we share these texts with another people, the Jews, and uh, the Jews have also shown us what it might look like to interpret these texts uh, in worship or include these texts in worship. Um, in Purim, they read Esther and Deuteronomy 25. Right. And the connection being that Haman is, in some sense, a descendant of Amalek. Yeah, I really, as you know, I worry about the lectionary. I, I worry about how much or how little Old Testament texts are used in worship. And the lectionary for many congregations has been a gain. Before the lectionary, the Revised Common Lectionary came about, I think there were more churches that hardly ever heard anything from the Old Testament. And and I think lectionary churches hear more of the Old Testament with the lectionary. That's great. But it's still probably, I don't know exactly, but it's probably something like 75%. Mm maybe 70% of the Old Testament that never shows up in the lectionary at all, uh, the Sunday lectionary. Um, so people aren't going to hear that, uh, and even the stuff that shows up might not be preached on. We know that too. Um, so the Pentateuch is read in the synagogue continuously over the course of uh, a year or three years, depending on um, which lectionary. And so everything gets heard. And that also means that everything has to be struggled with. And I, I really suspect that one of the reasons why we have such difficulty with questions of violence in the Bible is that they don't show up in the lectionary. <laughs> the lectionary's kind of bodlerized uh, the Bible in this regard. And that means we don't have a chance to struggle with them. Uh, we're, we're so afraid of them, in a sense, we kind of keep them on the shelf or put them in a box. And as hard as it is to listen to them and to sit with them and to reflect on them, I think ultimately it would be better to do that than to pretend they aren't there. And then somebody sees something and they think, oh my gosh, this is in the Bible? You know, well, that's because, <laughs> you know, it, it's new. It's a surprise, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I worry about that a good bit. Uh, and I think ultimately we'd, we'd be better off if, if we had to come to grips with these within, within Christian community and within our, our worship. Hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of allows for us um, an easy answer or, or, or allows us off the hook when we're wrestling with these issues um, uh, there's there's kind of this well that was that was the Old Testament we have the New Testament and it's a it's a message of peace um, what do you see as kind of the chief danger in moving to the New Testament too quickly um, and kind of uh, shutting out the Old Testament and its witness for the church? It's a great question. I mean, I, one of the first things I would say is I, I think if, if people try and come at the issue that way, they're kidding themselves 
because there's violence in the New Testament as well as the Old, right? And um, it's been argued by some people, John Golden Gay did this recently, that in some respects the violence of the New Testament is worse because you've got hell and eternal torment and there's nothing like that in the Old Testament. Um, but, but there are differences, of course, and I am well aware of the tension. I am absolutely persuaded that Jesus' message is one of nonviolence, right? And so for me, it really is a challenge to work with that understanding of the gospel and what Jesus is about and still to make sense of the, the biblical witness and the violence that's in the Old Testament as well as in the New. But I think that there is a problem with people's apprehension and understanding of God. And, and this is one of the reasons why I feel like I need to wrestle with these texts, right, until they bless me, to mm. take that language from Jacob at the Jabbok. Um, people want God to be good. God is. But God's goodness is a goodness which is not simply some sort of neutral benevolence. It's not a goodness that is somehow apart from justice. The biblical witness is firm that God is for certain things. And the reality in this world is that if you are for certain things, you are against others. You can't be for everything. And God is for the good. God is against the evil. And that againstness goes all the way down. It, it is also a part of the Bible's depiction and portrayal and understanding of God. And, and that's, if you want to know, that's really what I worry about. That in the contemporary church, we just want God to be a kind of sugar daddy. We want God to be a kind of benevolent nothing. A God who we can say is good, but a God finally to whom we do not ascribe power and we do not understand as just and we do not understand as taking a stance against wickedness and evil. And that is such a foundational and important aspect of the biblical witness. And I think that's where uh, sort of greater attention to these texts, these violent texts, could in fact be really theologically fruitful and really theologically necessary for us given our present day and age. Hmm. There's a lot there. Um, but again, one of the, the statements that I'm reminded that you make is that the Old Testament might just be realistic about the world in which we live. Um, and, and that definitely comes up too and, and it, well uh, side point you show that the Old Testament is not afraid to give a theological account of history and yet we read the Old Testament as if it's not allowed to do that 
that's yeah I think that's well said and um, you know it, it sometimes gets a little precious uh, to me honestly when people want to point the finger at the Old Testament without acknowledging at the same time that as a society you know we're fighting wars we're all absolutely complicit in violence uh, nobody has a pure place to stand and and point the finger um, I, the Old Testament is not concerned in the way that we would like to prevent God from all violence and to keep God from all violence and I think it it's because ultimately the Old Testament is much more concerned to say that God is sovereign and God is a part of everything and it would be a bigger problem for the Old Testament to say hey on the battleground in warfare God isn't there at all because God's too pure for that right? but that's really what the Old Testament I mean the, the Old Testament you want to think about it this way is all about God's willingness to wade to create a world and to wade into the messiness of it I think the the Bible as a whole is incarnational the incarnation doesn't happen for the first time with Jesus incarnation is really the story of the whole Old Testament God being in this world and trying to pull together the body of this people not just to proclaim a witness in the world but to really be a witness in the world uh, it's all an incarnational movement and so uh, the the point is that God is a part of, of, of everything right and God is becoming over time even more a part of everything so it, it would be harder for the Old Testament to say there's some aspect of, of life that is absent from God or from which God is absent that that would be unthinkable and really counter to the main thrust of the biblical witness um, I'm reminded uh, as you're talking about about this incarnational analogy um, or, or rather not even analogy it, it the Old Testament is our incarnational yeah and so um, we have this kind of conception that everything that Jesus does is new. And you mentioned Smith Christopher in, in his biblical theology of exile. He, he traces Jesus' nonviolence to the prophets, uh, yeah. particularly uh, Jeremiah. Well, the move, and, and there have been um, a number of uh, peace church tradition scholars like John Howard Yoder as well who have done this by saying that warfare is ultimately up to God. What that does is it kind of separates human beings from war. It opens up this possibility that um, violence should be consigned to God and then not performed by human beings at all. I think this is, in fact, the move that's made in the, in the New Testament already. L vengeance is the Lord's. So you leave it alone, right? That, that's the, the kernel, that's the, the germ of the, uh, the nonviolent uh, impulse. So um, I, find that, I find that 
very persuasive. And I think in the end, that's the, the move that I would try and make as well. Um, well, we have one final question. Um, and this just gets at where you're currently at. You're, you're on sabbatical, uh, doing a million different things. One of which is studying the book of Joshua and its theology. Um, would you mind sharing uh, with listeners some of the things that you're discovering, uh, particularly as it pertains to uh, this subject? Sure. Well, I'm trying to do something very similar, really. I'm trying to look at the book of Joshua in a more literary way, and I'm trying to see what I can learn from the, the mode of presentation. Um, I, I taught a Hebrew exegesis course on Joshua here at Duke Divinity School a couple of years ago. And uh, it was very interesting to work through the text closely with a class. I became more persuaded than ever that the book of Joshua is not really about what we think it's about. Uh, there are certainly reports of killing and reports of battle in the book. And indeed, you get repeated statements about how everybody's been killed. And yet, there's not a lot of violence that's actually depicted. Most of the violence that occurs seem to happen off stage, if you will. And what is depicted is, is a funny sort of violence. You know, so the big set piece in the first half of the book is Jericho. What actually happens? You know, they, they march around the walls for seven days and the priests blow the trumpet and the walls fall down. It's hardly this big, significant military engagement. Uh, it's also interesting to me, I don't quite know how far I want to push this yet, but if you look closely at Joshua 6, it's true that Joshua tells the soldiers, all right, when you go in, slaughter everybody. No prisoners. Kill the men, the women, the children, the animals. Awful. But earlier in that chapter, when God is giving instructions to Joshua, God doesn't actually say that. Those instructions are not given by God to Joshua. All that God tells Joshua is that when the wall falls down, you should go up. Period. That's interesting. As I say, I don't quite know what to make of it or how far I want to push it, but I think it is telling that this command to kill the prisoners doesn't come from God, it comes from Joshua. Now, do we take that as disobedient on Joshua's part or as going a step beyond what God had intended? Maybe. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Uh, but that's the kind of thing I want to wrestle with. There's been some, you know, there's been a kind of explosion recently in Joshua studies for years. Very little was done on Joshua because the attention in the field had really shifted to these historical concerns. And so after Bowling wrote his uh, volume on Joshua in the Anchor Bible, uh, George Ernest Wright and, and Bowling, um, it, it was really a kind of... Um, dead area of scholarship. And just in the past year, 
years, there has been a resurgence of interest, and I think it's the ethical issues and the question about violence, which is really pushing it. There's been some interesting work done, especially by Walter Moberly, who's at University of Durham in England, and his students, uh, people like uh, Doug Earle. And, uh, you know, they've suggested that, in effect, the violence in Joshua is not the main point. It's kind of the setup. Hmm sort of like a Western movie. Uh, there's a tradition of entry into the land, of conquest. There's certain ideas about it. That's used as sort of the furniture uh, to tell a story, the narrative furniture. And the story isn't so much about that. The story is kind of using that tradition, using that genre in order to talk about something else. And Doug Earl has suggested that the something else is about... Uh, who is a part of Israel, about the identity of the people Israel. And it is really striking that in the book of Joshua, you have instances of outsiders joining up with the Israelites. The, the big example would be Rahab, of course, right? Who She and her family, her people group, they occupy, they get a lot of attention, uh, in the first part of Joshua. So I find that a really attractive idea. Um, I, I do think that the text is still intending to be a realistic portrayal of Israel's entry into the land. And the one reference that we have to Joshua in the New Testament in Acts does seem to read it this way. You know, this was what happened. So I, I would maybe part company a little bit with this move in the scholarship to say that I think the text does intend for us to understand this as a realistic uh, depiction of what took place, but with attention to certain kinds of questions, such as the ones that, uh, that Doug Earl and others have have pointed to. So that's the kind of thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying to use uh, literary methods. I, I need to attend to the historical questions also. Uh, a number of scholars maintained for several years that, uh, because it just wasn't very well attested, that this kind of total war, take no prisoners, kill everybody, that it had never, in fact, taken place in the ancient Near East and, and didn't in Israel. And of course, we know there are other archaeological problems with Joshua where all of these sites inhabited at the time, probably not. So you know, some people have tried to wriggle out of it by saying, well, it didn't actually happen that way, so it's no longer a problem. Of course, it is a problem if you take this text as scripture, sure. which you know we do in the church. Um, but what the text is trying to do and how it is using history in order to reflect on certain things and tell a story, that, that's open. And that's the kind of thing I want to explore. Well, Dr. Chapman, it's been lovely chatting with you. I would love to continue to pick your brain, but um, you've been so generous in coming on the show. We want to offer that uh, generosity back to you in, I guess, Christian hospitality to leave you with... Uh, uh, any perduring statements, lingering thoughts that you want the listeners to have as it pertains to the Old Testament, violence, reading, whatever? 
Well, thank you, Hayden. It's a pleasure. I'm really grateful for the interest. It's helpful for me, actually, as I think about Joshua to have a chance to talk about some of these questions and, and issues. Um, you know, I think within the context of the Christian Bible and, um, and our life in the church, I would just make a plea, I guess, for not trying to push these violent texts to the side or pretend that they don't exist. Um, I think wrestling with them will be an opportunity for us to grow. It, it's been said that, you know, when we don't attend to these texts, one of the problems that arises is that we can overlook our own complicity in violence, that, that these texts not only tell us something about the past and about the Bible, they help us understand something and acknowledge something about ourselves and the ways that we continue to be complicit in violence. But, but I think by wrestling with these texts, we also have an opportunity to understand something uh, deep and profound and important, as I said, uh, about God and about what happens in the New Testament. I, I say sometimes, and, and I don't mean this as a kind of challenge or a kind of gotcha comment, but, but in fact as something very serious. I, I say, you know, look, if you've got trouble with violence in the Old Testament, then we really need to talk about the crucifixion. And we really need to think together about atonement because whatever we're going to say about violence in the Old Testament and violence in the Bible, it is also the case that there is a very violent act involving God and involving God's Son, Jesus Christ, right at the heart of the gospel and what we believe. And so I think in order for us to be clear about the gospel and clear about our confession in Jesus Christ, we also need to be clear-eyed about violence, and we need, again, to kind of clasp these texts and not release them until they have given us everything that we need to know, every possible blessing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. The Practicing Peace Podcast would like to give a special thanks to Forging Plowshares, Abigail Hagerman, Dr. Stephen Chapman, Duke Divinity School, and of course you, the listener. If you enjoyed today's segment, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us for next segment.